0: Well, open up your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. This morning I've entitled my message, Life in Eden. And the reason I've given it this title is because over in Genesis 1, we see Moses, the author, he paints the creation of the world in very broad brushstrokes. But then we come into Genesis chapter 2, and he here focuses in on the sixth day, and the creation of man and woman. And he paints this idyllic picture of what life was like in Eden. And this is something that we very much need because we now live in a broken world. We are broken. The people around us is broken. The systems of this world are broken. And we can sometimes wonder, how was life meant to be? Is this how life is, or is there more to life than this? You know, if you were going through a dump and you picked up a broken vase, you might wonder what that vase looked like when it was brand new. Well, here we see how life was meant to be. We see how life was meant to be, as God intended it, life in Eden. So look down in your Bibles in Genesis chapter 2, and in verses 1 to 3, we see the seventh day mentioned. Now, I believe that in mentioning the seventh day here, actually... Uh, this, these verses, Genesis uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, they should actually probably be included in Genesis chapter 1. Um, the verses and chapter divisions in your Bible actually came much later in church history, around in the 16th century. A printer put in the, the, the chapter and verse divisions. Now, I'm, I'm grateful that they did because it makes finding things in the Bible really easy, but in the original Hebrew and Greek, there were not chapter and verse divisions, And since this speaks about the seventh day, it should probably go with the rest of the days, the six days mentioned in chapter one. But nevertheless, in speaking about the seventh day, I think what God is giving us here is he's giving humans a pattern to live by. Look down in verse one in your Bibles, we read this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now, when you observe the seventh day in comparison to all the other days of creation, you notice some important differences. First, there is no announcement, and God said, or proclamation of God's word. Let there be on the seventh day. You also find at the end of the seventh day, there isn't this little tag that you find at the end of the other days and there was evening, and there was morning, and then it says the name of the day. You don't find that. Which has led commentators and theologians to suggest that maybe the seventh day is continuing, that maybe God's rest, the rest that he rested from on the seventh day is continuing today. So why did God rest? What what does it mean where it says God rested? Well, it can't mean that God was physically tired because God is omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful, which means whatever energy that he exerted in the creation of the world did not deplete him. He is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Further, Jesus, over in John's gospel, he said, My Father is always working. God is always at work, providentially, upholding this world. As we read the Bible, we read about his mighty acts of redemption as he steps into human history, and we read about him working all things according to the counsel of his will. So he's working his sovereign purposes. So what does it mean where it says that God rested? Well, I think what it means is that he rested from his, the specific work of creation. He created the world in six days, and then he rested from that specific work. He is still working to providentially uphold the world. He's working in redemption. He's working the world according to his sovereign purposes. But he rested from his work of creation. Now, the big question that I have as I study this passage is, why could God rest? Why could God rest? Now, this is a question that I think many of us need to examine, because in our world, one of the things that we struggle with is we struggle with finding rest. Many people that I meet are just stressed out. They're full of, full of anxiety and worry, and they just find no rest. They stay up late at night. They can't sleep. And I think there's a number of reasons for that, you know, we live, the pace of life now is, is such that it's so quick, we, we live in a world uh, filled with technology, and technology promised to make our lives easier, but now oftentimes we find that what technology actually does is it means that we work all the time. If you have your, your, your email linked to your smartphone, you will find yourself answering email like at 4am in the morning or late into the evening. And you know, we live in a very competitive world where it's hard to find employment, and so you want to actually meet the, um, the demands of your employer. And so this means that for many people, rest, they find it very, very difficult to find rest. So why could God rest? Well, the answer to that question, I think, is found in chapter one. In this phrase that we see repeated over and over again, after God created certain things, it says that God saw that it was good. Now, what is that? That is God. Delighting in creation, being satisfied with creation. Now, this reaches its climax in the sixth day, where at the end of chapter 1, we read in verse 31, look down in your Bibles, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. You see, the reason that God could rest on this seventh day was he was satisfied with the work that he had done. It was satisfactory, it was complete in his eyes. And I think this tells us the reason why many of us can't rest is because we never know that, we don't know if we've worked enough. We don't know whether our works have actually, actually, we've worked enough to find approval and the significance that we are looking for in life. You know, we, we don't know whether we've worked enough to silence that inner murmur that we have in our hearts You see, deep rest is actually this soul satisfaction that my work is sufficient. We don't know whether our works are actually sufficient or not, which is why you can take a holiday, and a holiday is a good thing, but it still mightn't give you that soul satisfaction. Or you can lose yourself in like Netflix, uh, a Netflix like TV season and and binge watch, but even though that provides some relief, it mightn't provide that deep soul satisfaction. Rest. So, where does this deep soul rest come from? Well, look down in verse 3 in your Bibles. We read this. So, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, in chapter 1, you will see God blessing various things, but here he blesses the seventh day. And this is the very first time that we see in the Bible that God consecrates something, he makes it holy. And when God consecrates something and makes it holy, he sets it aside for himself. And so he sets aside the seventh day as his day is holy unto him. So what we see here is we see God establishing this pattern. For six days he worked, and on the seventh day he rested. Now, as you fast forward through the Bible, so you, you fast forward past the flood, past the patriarchs, past the exodus... You come to Mount Sinai, and you see God entering into covenant with Israel, and God gives Israel this pattern. In the Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment, he commands Israel this. He says, for six days you shall labor, and on the seventh day you will rest. The seventh day will be holy unto me. It will be my day. Now, there were two reasons or two things that Israel were to do on the Sabbath, on the seventh day. The first thing that they were to do is that they were to remember their great salvation. In Deuteronomy 5, verse 15, we read this. The Lord says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So on the Sabbath day, Israel would remember how God had delivered them. How God had parted the Red Sea so that they had walked through on dry ground. How they were once slaves in Egypt and now God had freed them. You see, only free people can take a rest. Israel were never able to rest while they were slaves in Egypt. They had to work every single day. But now they were freed by the Lord. They could rest. And they could remember God's great salvation. You know, if you can't take a rest, if you have to work all the time, maybe you're still a slave. Maybe you haven't embraced the freedom that is yours. But the second thing that the Sabbath did is the Sabbath was a sign of Israel's covenant relationship with God. In Exodus 31 verse 17, we read this. The Lord says, "'It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel,' that in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and on the seventh he rested and was refreshed. So this keeping of the Sabbath was a sign that Israel were God's people. Whereas all of the other nations surrounding Israel worked every day of the week, Israel took a Sabbath on the seventh day and that signaled that they were God's covenant people, that they belonged to him. Now the question that I would have, if I was sitting and listening to me this morning, which I hope is sort of going off in your mind as you're sitting there, the question that I would have is, does this mean as Christians that we should actually observe this same pattern? Should we only work for six days and then should we have a Sabbath? Should we change like the day of worship from Sunday to Saturday? Should, should we observe the Sabbath? Is that what we should do? Well, the answer to that question is no and contained within this Sabbath idea is a principle that is helpful. So let me first explain, no, why I don't think you have to observe the Sabbath today. Remember, as you go through the Bible, you reach this very important character. His name is Jesus. Have you heard of him? Um, and, And Jesus, being the Messiah, he comes into this world, and then in the last week before his crucifixion, He completes the work that God had set for him to do on what day? The sixth day, on Friday. And what were Jesus' last words out of his mouth? It is finished. On the sixth day, just as God had completed the work of creation in six days, on the sixth day, Jesus completed the work of redemption and said, it is finished. And then he was buried in a grave, and he was in that grave on Friday night, on Saturday, the Sabbath, and then on the first day of the week, what happened? He was raised from the dead, which shows that God had approved of his work, that God was satisfied with the work of Jesus, that Jesus was the firstborn from the dead, that he was the first of God's new creation work. So, what we see in the Bible, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, that Sabbath in the Old Testament was a shadow that pointed forward to Christ, who was the reality. That the rest that the Sabbath promised is found in Jesus. It's through the work of Jesus on the cross, we no longer have to work for our salvation. And as Hebrews chapter 4 says, we can enter into his rest by faith. Um, One of the greatest missionaries in the past was Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor, he wrote this, or someone wrote this biography of his life called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. And in it, he, even though Hudson Taylor was this busy missionary who founded like China Inland Mission, this amazing mission organization to, to the Chinese people, he, he said he found the secret of, of, of rest, which is trusting in Christ, trusting deeply in the work of Christ. And one of his favorite hymns was, Jesus, I am resting, resting. I didn't know that hymn, so I looked it up online. And and listen to these lyrics from this hymn. This is a beautiful hymn. Jesus, I am resting, resting. In the joy of what you are, I am finding out the greatness of your loving heart. You see, if you want to truly rest, if you want true rest, it isn't necessarily found in a holiday, although that's a good thing to have. It's actually found in actually trusting deeply in the work of Christ and being satisfied in what Christ has done for you as your Messiah. But, but, as I said, contained within the Sabbath is actually a principle. You see, Jesus said, man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. And it's if God knew that we as human beings needed We needed rhythms of work and rest. We needed to take one day out of seven to rest in who God is and to remember who God is. And so from the very beginning of the church, what happened from the very beginning of the church is the church transferred the day of worship from the seventh day, Saturday, to Sunday, the first day of the week, so that they could gather together, so that they could remember their salvation, so that they could break bread and remember covenant, the covenant relationship that they had with God. I was reading just recently this um, book by Anne Graham Lotz, and she was speaking about what Sunday was like for her growing up. Anne Graham Lotz is the daughter of Billy Graham. And she was just, and it was so beautiful what she was saying. She was saying every Sunday what would happen is as she came down from her room, her mother would have Christian music playing. So this was unlike any other day. She would come down and there would be Christian music playing so that right from the very beginning of the day, there would be this worship music playing. As she would come down, her mother would have prepared a a unique breakfast that wasn't the same for every other day of the week. They would then get dressed into their Sunday best, clothes that they didn't wear every other day of the week. They would go to church and they would gather with God's people, something that they didn't do every other day of the week. They would then go home and they would have a meal with their extended family and a special meal, a roast and some pudding, something that they didn't have every other day of the week. In the afternoon, they would have a nana nap, something that they didn't do every other day of the week. And then at the end of the day, they would finish it with worship. They would begin the day with worship with God's family and would finish the day with worship with God's family. Now, I know in our contemporary church, we've sort of said, well, that's sort of all that sort of stuff is very legalistic and old school. But I wonder, I wonder whether there was something in that, whether that pattern actually provided Christians something where they set aside special time and they said, this time is the Lord's time. And I'm going to reflect on who he is and I'm going to remember his covenant with me. You know, I think that seven days is just long enough for you to forget who God is and for you to forget what he's done for you. As Jesus said, the Sabbath, man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. Maybe it's really spiritually healthy for you. Maybe, maybe if you only rock up to church twice a month, I wonder whether that's actually spiritually healthy for you. Maybe you actually need, need to gather with God's people more than that because there seems to be this pattern in Scripture that we need this rhythm of work and rest. Let's look down in verse 4 now. Verse 4 of your Bibles. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. The generations there is tel in Hebrew. As I said in my very first, when I introduced um, Genesis to you, This teledote becomes the um, structure that we will see throughout the whole book of Genesis. And uh, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, it's interesting here that we see a change in the name of God. In Genesis chapter 1, the name of God that's primarily used is the name Elohim, the high God. But here in Genesis chapter 2, we have Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, the personal name for God. Look down in verse five. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for Yahweh Elohim had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now, I just want to speculate for a few moments because this is a little bit interesting. It seems that before the flood, There was no rain as we know it today, that it seems the way that the earth received um, water was from this mist that would come up and water the ground, which tells us a little bit how brave Noah must have been to announce that the heavens were going to open because that had never happened before in human history. A water, a mist had come up and watered the ground. And that, now this is just speculative, and it may have been that the atmosphere at that time surrounding the earth was quite dense which kept UV light and other harmful rays from humans, which may account for the long age of life that we read in Genesis chapter five of those pre-flood people. Anyway, that's speculation. Let's look down in verse seven. Then Yahweh Elohim formed the man of the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life And man became a living creature. So here we see God as potter, and he's getting his hands dirty. He's getting dirt under his fingernails as he fashions man out of the dust of the ground. Now, we'll read later in Genesis that not only were man created out of the ground, but so were the animals. And so it is true that we as human beings, we have a material part of our existence. We have a body. But you'll see in that verse that God also breathes into the nostrils of man the breath of life. So as human beings, we not only have this material part, but we also have this immaterial part. We have body and soul, which is so interesting. You know, um, last century, the communists, they sought to stamp out faith and they believed if they could just persecute the church in, in communist USSR and other communist countries, then the church would be stamped out. But it's interesting, isn't it, that you know, the church still thrived, that they, even though they tried to suppress the church, underground churches grow, grew up. And this is because every single human being, even though we have a material body, we also have an immaterial soul. And even though peoples are spiritually dead, they still have this part of their life where they crave for some things spiritually. They still have this spiritual side, this immaterial part to their existence. But look down in verse eight. And Yahweh Elohim planted a garden in Eden. Now the word Eden in Hebrew is the word delight. So this was a garden of delights in the east. I think I take that reference to mean it was east of where Adam was created. So Adam saw the Lord God planting and forming this garden for him. And what was this garden like? Look down in verse nine. And out of the ground, Yahweh Elohim made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and is good for food. So this truly was this garden of delights, surrounding Adam was all of these beautiful flowers and trees to look at, pleasurable to look at. And there was all these fruit trees. We can only imagine mango trees and apple trees and orange trees and strawberries and raspberries, everything that is good to taste, good for, good for us to eat. What we see here is that in Eden, God not only gave humanity a pattern to live by, but he also gave them a place to live in. And here's the thing about that place to live in. They were meant to enjoy life. They were meant to enjoy the creation that God had given them. I want to tell you something, Christians. I want to tell you something. God wants you to enjoy life. Wow, that's big. God wants you to actually enjoy this earth. I know that that's hard for us to to stomach because we've all heard the song, haven't we? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And in the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, if you turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, then the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's a beautiful sentiment in that song, by the way. I think it's a beautiful song. I love that song. However, that's not the Eden hermeneutic. It's actually when we turn our face towards Jesus, the things of this earth will become rich and beautiful as God once intended them to be. Because God actually took human beings and he placed them in a garden of delights. So pleasure is not a bad thing. You know, part of the reason that the church struggles with this is because asceticism came into the church pretty early on. It came from Greek philosophy. Asceticism is the idea that in order to gain some higher spiritual enlightenment, you need to actually, um, you know, deny yourself of earthly pleasures. And so pretty early on in the church history, you see in the second and third century, people going out as hermits into the desert, trying to suppress earthly pleasure in order to gain some sort of spiritual enlightenment. It's a little bit like what you see in India with the swamis and the yogis who like inflict pain upon their body, thinking that by inflicting this pain, they will therefore gain some deeper enrichment that is not how god actually intended life god actually wants us to enjoy life but here's the thing he wants us to enjoy life within the boundaries that he has made look down at the end of the verse it says and the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and in verse 16 look down in verse 16 the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day in which you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, here's a big question. Why did God do this? Why did God plant these two trees? And why did he give the man this command? And embedded in the command is this consequence that if he eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he's going to die. Why did God do that? Why did God establish rules? I know that's so hard for us to understand as Westerners because we think that pleasure can't be enjoyed if there's actually rules surrounding the pleasure, don't we? That's what our culture teaches, that if you want true freedom, true freedom comes by having no rules. But we see right here in Eden is that this was an act of God's grace. By actually establishing these rules, what he was teaching Adam and Eve was that they were not God, they were not ultimate, they were actually created for another, and every pleasure that they were to enjoy was supposed to point them forward to worship the one who had created it. I love what Paul Tripp says. He says this. He says, the pleasure of food is meant to point us to the bread of life. In whom we can find eternal satisfaction. The pleasure of seeing something beautiful before your eyes is supposed to point us to the pleasure of gazing upon the holiness of the Lord. The the pleasure of touch is meant to point us to the one who can touch our lives, giving us peace and purpose. The pleasure of human affection is meant to point us to the one whose love is limitless. So every single thing in the garden was supposed to point these humans to worship God and to live under the boundaries that he had created. And you see, listen up here. This is so significant because this has big implications for how you actually say no to sin and temptation. Many people think that the way to grow in holiness is through asceticism is just by saying no to sin. And obviously you need to say no to sin, but what will actually motivate you as a human to say no to sin is when you find God way more pleasurable than sin. The Bible does say that the pleasures of sin are for a season. There is pleasure found in sin initially, but obviously it comes with a barb, it comes with a hook, it comes with death. But the way to actually grow in holiness is actually to see God as being better and bigger than any sin. I love what it says in Hebrews 11 about Moses, the, the author of this passage. This is amazing. It says, it says, Moses was willing to suffer reproach. And this was because he counted, he counted the treasures of Christ as of surpassing value than the fleeting pleasures of sin. You will never grow in holiness unless you see that God is way better. He's way better and his ways are way better than that sin that you're cherishing. So God gave humans a pattern to live by. He gave them a place to live in. And then at the end of the chapter, we see that he gave Adam a partner to live with. Look down in verse 18 in your Bibles. We read this. Then Yahweh Elohim said, it is not good that a man should be alone. Up to this point in creation, it was good, it was good, it was good. But here's the first time that something is not good. It's not good for a person to be alone. We were created for community. And so God says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, we shouldn't read this as devaluing women. As we've said over in chapter 1, chapter 1 says that men and women were created equal in the image of God. And the word helper here in Hebrew is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe how God is humanity's helper. Verse 17 19 Now out of the ground Yahweh Elohim had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and he brought them to man to see what he would call them and whatever the man called the every living creature that was Now, we shouldn't see this as some little quaint thing where he's just naming these animals willy-nilly like at Sunday school. Uh, One of the commentators that I read said that when Adam named an animal, he had to look intensely at the animal. He had to observe its features and give it a name that was consistent with its nature. Um, Verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, I think part of this whole naming thing as well was that God was teaching Adam a very important lesson. He was teaching him not to take Eve for granted. Men, men, never take your wife for granted. She is a gift from God to you. Don't take her for granted. Verse 21. So Yahweh Elohim caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. Later in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 15, we'll see that Abraham goes into a deep sleep. So this is something mysterious that God is doing here. It's not just normal sleep. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that Yahweh Elohim had taken from the man, he made into a woman. Now, at this point, I have to mention the comment by um, the famous commentator who has just, Charles Henry, I think that's right, Carl Henry, sorry, Carl Henry, Matthew Henry, there you go. It just went from my mind for a second. Matthew Henry, you've probably heard this comment, and it's such a beautiful comment. It says that God didn't take um, woman out of man's, Head so that she would rule over him. Nor did he take her from man's feet so that he would stomp all over him. But he took, her, he took her from his side so that she would be his equal, so that she would be under his bosom and close to his heart. How beautiful is that? And then it says right there, And he brought her to the man. What a beautiful scene. God the Father here is bringing Eve to Adam. Eve is coming on on God the Father's arm, and she is perfect in body. She's innocent in her spirit. What a beautiful picture. Is it any wonder that the man said, Wow, (laughs) this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, when we read that, we've got to understand that in English... We see family relationships in terms of blood. You know, we say someone is a blood relative or, you know, their blood is thicker than water. But for the Hebrew people, they saw family relationships in terms of flesh and bone. So he is saying, she is one of mine. Unlike all of the animals, she belongs to me. And then in verse 24, we see God performing the very first marriage ceremony. And I think this is very significant, people, it's right here on day six at the creation of man and woman, God creates marriage. Marriage was God's idea. Marriage is between a man and a woman. It doesn't matter what society says about it. The Bible says it, and God created it, and he created it from the very beginning. That marriage is between a man and a woman for life. And contained here within verse 24, we see the essence of what marriage actually is. Marriage is a covenant that you enter into before God and you make a number of promises. Look down in verse 24. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he shall hold fast to his wife. You know what marriage is? Marriage is saying that I am going to be 100% committed to this person. Out of all of the people of the world, this is the person that I am going to be committed to. You know, many marriages struggle because people don't leave and cleave. People don't leave other allegiances behind and totally commit themselves to their spouse. Then we see the next part, and they shall become one flesh. In a marriage, you are no longer just, you should no longer consider yourself just being by yourself. You are now in a partnership where what you do affects the other person and what they do affects you. So I think in a marriage, you should share the same bank account. You should share the same bed. You should share all this oneness together. You know, when, what, what, now that I'm married to Tegan, my life affects her. So what I do, I have to think about her. I am no longer just an individual. I, I am now one in, in one relationship with her. And then we see the final part in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. A very important part of marriage is that when you get married, you leave nothing back. You are completely transparent. There are no secrets that you hold. There are no rooms out of which you don't let the other person see. And this is expressed by the fact that you only allow your spouse to see your nakedness. That they are the one who sees your physical nakedness because marriage means that you now open yourself up completely to this other person and they are able to see who you really are. Now, I know as I speak about this, this part of the scripture that for some of you here today, this is very painful because we do live in a sinful and broken world. And maybe there's some of you here today and, and you're single and you're and God hasn't brought along a partner for you, even though you've prayed about it many times, or maybe you're divorced here today, and and that's very painful for you. But the beautiful thing about this passage here is that as you go through the New Testament, as Sarah read out this morning, as you find in Ephesians chapter five, you find that marriage was actually created for a purpose. It's meant to be a metaphor for Christ's relationship to his church. Just think about it for a second. The very first Adam, God took a rib from his side to, in order to create Eve, his bride. And when it comes to Christ, Christ also had his side pierced. And blood, and he's, by his blood, he has purchased the church for his own possession. So now, if you are in Jesus, here's the thing. If you have someone who will be committed to you no matter what. Someone who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You've come into relationship with Christ and you are now one with Jesus and he is looking out for you. He's going to look out for you. He's going to care for you. And now you can be completely transparent in front of Jesus without shame because his blood covers all of your sin. Now let me tell you something, all of you married people think that this just applies to the single people. This actually applies to you as well because you're never going to have a fruitful marriage unless you understand how your marriage to Jesus interacts with your marriage. You know, for me, when I came into marriage, I looked to Tegan to provide many things that I thought I needed. I looked to her to provide my significance and my security and looked to her to meet all of my needs. And I had these expectations. And if you do that in marriage, you will find that 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 sort of spoils marriage and it puts this weight on the other person. But if there is this dynamic in your marriage where because of your relationship with Jesus, you don't need to get significance. You don't need to get security from your other person. But you can just do what God has commanded you to do. You can, husbands, you can love your wife and lay down your life for your wife regardless of what they do for you. And wives, you can respect your husband and and build him up regardless of what he does for you. When that dynamic exists in your relationship, I tell you what happens is it creates a culture in your relationship for romance to thrive, for, for new life and new growth to take place. Maybe there are some marriages here this, here this morning and maybe your marriage is on its last legs and you're wondering, what do I do? And the whole time, what you've been thinking is you've been thinking, I need to do something to control this person to make them do what I need them to do. That will always end in failure. What you need to do is you need to come back to Jesus and realize that in him, you have everything you need. He is 100% committed to you. He's never going to leave you nor forsake you. You can be completely transparent in him. And he will give you the power to love this person in such a way that you don't need anything in return. And when you see that happen, let me tell you, I saw it in my own marriage. When you see that happen, when you love like that, when you love with his love, it just creates this dynamic in your relationship for for love to thrive and to build. And there's all these beautiful dynamics of love just start to build in in, in your relationship. I tell you, I, I think in this room, there was no one more on the rocks in our marriage than Tegan and I. Our marriage was almost over. And yet God resurrected it because I was willing and... Amazingly, she was willing to look to Christ rather than to each other to meet needs and and to love like that. It's amazing, amazing what God can do. And so, right here with life in Genesis, we see that God created us with a pattern to live for. We see that He created us a place to live in and a partner to live with. But obviously, we don't live in Eden anymore, do we? We live in a broken world. We do. But it's interesting that the Bible begins with a marriage of the first Adam, and it ends in Revelation with the marriage supper of the Lamb, the second Adam. And I can't promise you today that your life will be awesome if you turn to Jesus, but I can promise you that if you turn to Jesus you can get a place at the table in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And on the first day of the week, we have gathered here to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. That 2,000 years ago, the grave is empty. Jesus was raised. And now he is our rest. Amen? We don't have to work to try and prove ourselves anymore. We rest in his work. Now, we should look upon his beauty and turn away from sin because he is the most beautiful thing. And now we are included in him. What a person. He will never leave you. He will always be devoted to you. What, what an amazing savior. Let's pray, hey, as we, as we come. Let's come to the Lord.